Chapters 41 and 42 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Chapter 41 John Don Scotus. Life. John Don Scotus. Dr. Subtilis, the most gifted opponent of Thomism, rises above the plane of mere controversialists and takes rank among the great schoolmen, if not among the greatest. He was born, according to some writers, in 1266, according to others, in 1274. Where he was born is also uncertain, the most common opinion being that England was his birthplace. At an early age he entered the Franciscan order and made his studies at Oxford, where the anti-Thomistic party was for the time triumphant. From 1294 to 1304 he taught at Oxford. In 1304 he began to teach in Paris. In 1308 he was transferred to Cologne, where he died the same year. Both at Oxford and at Paris Scotus enjoyed a reputation as a teacher which was unequaled by even the greatest of his predecessors. Sources The Opus Oxoniense, which together with other works was composed while Scotus was at Oxford, is a commentary on the books of sentences. The works, or rather the lecture notes, which he composed at Paris, were collected by his disciples under the title Reportata Parisiensia, or Opus Parisiense. The complete works of Scotus were published by Luc Wedding, Lyon, 1639. This edition was reprinted by Vive, Paris, 1891. Monograph, Plusansky, La Philosophie de Dun Scotus, Paris, 1887. Doctrines. The philosophy of Don Scotus is characterized by criticism and subtlety. Owing perhaps to his predilection for mathematical studies, a predilection which is said to be due to the influence of Roger Bacon, Scotus was too much inclined to reject as inconclusive the philosophical arguments of his predecessors. He attacked, without distinction of school, and apparently without the least respect for the prestige of a great name, the doctrines of Alexander of Hales, St. Benaventure, Roger Bacon, Henry of Ghent, and above all, St. Thomas. Such is the subtlety of his speculations that even the mind trained in scholastic modes of thought has considerable difficulty in following his line of reasoning. Philosophy and Theology Scotus, while agreeing with St. Thomas that philosophy and theology are distinct sciences, insists on the inferiority of the former, maintaining that human reason is incapable of solving such problems as the immortality of the soul. Indeed, his doctrine on this point comes dangerously near to the averroistic principle that what is true in theology may be false in philosophy. Divine Attributes St. Thomas taught that there exists only a distinctio rationis, or logical distinction, between the divine nature and the divine attributes, 
justice, power, etc. Scotus maintains that the distinction in question is not merely logical, neither is it real, but something which is partly real and partly logical. Distinctio formalis a parte rei. This celebrated distinction, sometimes referred to as the Scotistic distinction, is not easy to understand. Its opponents contend that it implies a contradiction. It is more than logical, for it exists a parte rei, independently of the mind, and it is less than real, for it is a distinction not of things, but merely of formalities, which may exist in one and the same thing, as, for example, the distinction between animality and rationality in man. According to Scotus, the essence of things, as well as their existence, depends not on the divine intellect, but on the divine will. Matter and Form Scotus revives the doctrine of universal matter, which the first Franciscan teachers had borrowed from Avicibrol. Ego autem ad positionem avicibronis radio, et primam partem, scilicet, quod in omnibus creatis per se subsistentibus, tam corporalibus, quam spiritualibus, sit una materia tenio. All created substances are, therefore, composed of matter and form. Scotus, with characteristic subtlety, distinguishes three kinds of materia prima. Materia primo prima, habens actum de se omnino indeterminatum respectu determinationis cuius libet forme. Materia secundo prima, que est subiectum generationis et corruptionis, quam mutant agentia creata, seo angeli, seo agentia corruptibilia. Materia tertio prima, Que est materia cuius libet artis et materia cuius libet agentis naturalis particularis. The substantial form is not, as St. Thomas taught, essentially one. It determines the matter to a higher mode of being, but this determination gives rise to an indetermination or potency with respect to a higher form. Thus, the generic form leads to the specific, and the specific to the individual, so that the more complete is the determination of matter, the greater is the plurification of forms in matter. Omnis forma sive plurificatio est de imperfecto et indeterminato at perfectum et determinatum, de uno materiali at plura formaliter distincta. Doctrine of Universals in the Questiones Acutissime Super Universalia Porfiri, Scotus develops a doctrine of moderate realism. In his metaphysical treatises, he defends the plurality of substantial generic and specific forms, formalitates, which have an objective reality and a kind of unity inferior to numerical unity. In this manner, Scotus prepares the way for his followers, who built on his metaphysical doctrines a system of exaggerated realism. Essence and Existence Between essence and existence there is, according to Scotus, a distinctio formalis a parte rei. The principle of individuation is neither matter nor form nor quantity, 
but an individual property added to these. This property was called by the Scotists the thisness, hechetas of a thing. Scotus denies the Thomistic doctrine that there cannot be two angels of the same species. Simpliciter possibile est plures angelos esse in eadem specie. Voluntarism. The philosophy of Scotus is voluntaristic in its entire spirit. Scotus explicitly teaches that the will is superior to the intellect. Voluntas imperans intellectui est causa superior respectu actus eius. Intellectus autem, si est causa volitionis, est causa subserviens voluntati. St. Thomas taught that the intuitive contemplation of the divine essence in the beatific vision is the principal and indeed the essential element in man's final happiness. Scotus teaches that it is by the act of perfect love of God in the next life that final happiness is to be attained. In a similar spirit of voluntarism, Scotus holds that the natural law depends on the will of God and that actions are good because God has commanded them, while St. Thomas, true to the principles of intellectualism, taught that natural law depends on the mind of God and that God commands certain actions because they are good. Scotus maintains that human reason alone cannot prove the omnipotence of God and the immortality of the human soul. St. Thomas taught that these truths are demonstrable by reason. There are many other points of contrast between the tenets of the subtle doctor and those of the angel of the schools. The antithesis between the two great teachers is not to be explained by the, quote, wish on the part of Brother John to contradict whatever Brother Thomas had taught, end quote. It is an antithesis arising out of the difference in the mental temperaments of the two men, the difference between an intellectualist and a voluntarist. Historical Position Scotus is frequently described as the Kant of scholastic philosophy. He certainly resembles Kant in his refusal to accept without criticism any theory, no matter how universally received or how strongly supported by the authority of great names. The resemblance is accentuated by the fact that both Scotus and Kant are voluntarists, both maintaining that will is superior to intellect and that human reason cannot demonstrate the truths which most vitally affect the destiny of man. But, remarkable as the resemblance is, no less striking is the contrast between the two philosophers. Kant appeals to the moral consciousness to prove the truths which reason cannot demonstrate. Scotus, on the contrary, appeals to revelation. Scotus places the supernatural order of truth above all philosophical knowledge, and consequently his criticism is partial and relative to the natural order of truth while Kant's is radical and absolute. For Kant, there is no court of appeal superior to the moral consciousness. For Scotus, the supreme tribunal before which all truth is judged is divine revelation. Scotus inaugurates an age of talent rather than of genius. The influence of St. Bonaventure, Albert, and St. Thomas seems to have silenced for a while the contentions which distracted the earlier schoolmen. But now that the great constructive thinkers have disappeared, 
the intellectual knight-errantry of Abelard's day, once more comes into vogue, and minds incapable of constructive effort devote themselves to analysis and controversy. It is among these lesser lights that Scotus, subtle and penetrating as his mind was, must be classed. For while he excelled even the greatest of the schoolmen in critical acumen, he was wanting in that synthetic power which St. Thomas possessed in so preeminent a degree, and which more than any other quality of mind stamps the writer or thinker as a philosopher. Thomists and Scotists In Scotus, the opponents of Thomism found a champion. From this time forth, the Franciscan teachers followed the leadership of Don Scotus, while the Dominicans ranged themselves behind St. Thomas. The principal Scotists were Francis of Mayron, died 1327, surnamed Magister Acutus Abstractionum, and Antonio Andrea, died 1320, surnamed Doctor Dulciflus. During the 14th and 15th centuries, there appeared also the following Scotists, John of Basilis, John Dumbleton, Walter Burley, Dr. Planos et Perspicus, Alexander of Alexandria, Lucetus of Brescia, and Nicholas de Orbelis. The best known of the Thomists of this period are Gerard of Bologna, died 1317, John of Naples, died 1330, Peter de Palude, Pierre de la Palue, died 1342, and John Capriolus, 1380-1444, who was surnamed Princeps Tomistarum. In the course of time, the controversy between the rival schools absorbed the attention which should have been devoted to the development of scholastic philosophy in relation to the scientific doctrines introduced at the opening of the modern era. This, as we shall see, is one of the reasons why scholasticism failed to accommodate itself to the scientific movement. Chapter 42. Averroism in the Schools When, in the first decades of the 13th century, the Greek text of Aristotle was introduced into the schools, and the Christian philosophers began to compose commentaries on the Latin translations made from it, the followers of the Arabian commentators commenced to give a more decidedly anti-Christian direction to their interpretation of Aristotle. In this way there sprang up two hostile schools of Aristotelianism, the orthodox Aristotelianism of the schoolmen and the heterodox Aristotelianism of the Averroists. The unity of the active intellect, the immortality of the individual soul, the freedom of the will, and the question of fatalism were some of the points on which the schoolmen and the Averroists differed in their interpretation of the philosopher. But the most characteristic doctrine of the Averroists, a doctrine which involved the denial of the most vital principle of scholasticism, was that what is true in philosophy may be false in theology, and vice versa. Towards the end of the 13th century, Averroism appeared in the University of Paris, and was made the subject of several ecclesiastical inquiries and condemnations. Its chief representatives were Ziger of Brabant, died 1282 or 1288, Boethius the Dacian, 
and Bernier of Nivelles. Among the opponents of Averroism are to be reckoned the great schoolmen who, like Albert and St. Thomas, composed treatises for the express purpose of refuting the doctrines of the Averroists and controversialists like Raymond Lully, who undertook an extensive campaign against the errors of the Arabians. Raymond Lully Life Raymond Lully, Doctor Illuminatus, is in some respects one of the most remarkable figures in the history of medieval philosophy. His whole life was dominated by the idea of converting the Moorish world to Christianity. This he hoped to accomplish by the preaching of the gospel, by the refutation of the errors of the Arabians, and by the scientific demonstration of the revealed truths of the Christian religion. He was an apostle, a controversialist, and a theosophist. He was also an inventor, having contrived, among other things, a logical machine by means of which he hoped to prove all truth. Raymond was born at Majorca in 1234 or 1235. After spending some years at the court of Aragon, he entered the Order of St. Francis and devoted the remainder of his life to the conversion of the Moors. He was stoned by the Muslims at Tunis in 1315. Sources Raymond's works occupy 11 folio volumes in the Mainz edition, 1721-1742. The most important of his treatises, Ars Brevis, Duodecim Principia Philosophiae, and Ars Magna, were published at Strasbourg in 1651. Doctrines Raymond Theosophy appears in the doctrine that all truths, including the mysteries of faith, are demonstrable by human reason. The doctrine, however, is not to be understood in the rationalistic sense. For Raymond maintains that reason, in order to attain the highest truths, must be aided by faith. Et sicut voluntas non posset amare objectum primum sine caritate, sic intellectus non potest intelligere primum objectum sine fide. Qui benescit coniosere et intelligere, resque consistunt in intellecto et sensibilis, optime potest intelligere et coniosere si volueret, quod sicut esse dissunum rationi, quod tres dii essent, sic esse dissunum, quod tres persone divine non essent. The logical machine which Raymond invented seems to have been contrived and constructed on the principle that not only are ideas representations of realities, but the combinations of ideas are representations of the truth existing in real things. The machine was made up of letters which symbolized the elements of thought and of different geometrical figures, such as circles, squares, triangles, etc., along which the letters could be moved so as to form different combinations, each resultant combination representing a conclusion and each process of movement representing a proof. It is possible that Raymond was led to the idea of constructing a logical machine by his study of the Kabbalistic philosophy of the Jews. He frequently expresses his great admiration for what he calls the superabundance sapientia, 
the mystic doctrine of Jewish philosophy. Est igitur Kabbalah, habitus anime rationalis ex recta ratione divinarum rerum cognitivus, propter quot est de maximo etiam divino, consecutive divina scientia vocari debit. Historical position. Raymond's contemporaries did not agree as to the value of his contributions to philosophy and theology. Some regarded him not only as orthodox in his teaching, but especially illumined from on high, Doctor Illuminatus. They commented on his works and provided for the foundation of special chairs to perpetuate his doctrines in the universities of Barcelona and Valencia. Others, on the contrary, so vehemently denounced his teachings as heterodox that the Inquisitor of Aragon was instructed to draw up a list of propositions from the writings of Raymond and forward it to Rome. It is uncertain whether the propositions were formally condemned. It is, however, generally admitted that were it not for the savor of heterodoxy attaching to his doctrines, Raymond would have been canonized. Retrospect Before passing to the fourth period of scholastic philosophy, let us look back at the period which we have just studied. It is the golden age of scholasticism. During the 13th century, Christian revelation and scientific knowledge were harmonized in the great synthetic systems of Christian philosophy. The dogmatic doctrines of the patristic period were welded into a more consistent body of theological speculation. The whole range of human knowledge was surveyed, and whatever was found to be true was given its proper place in systems of constructive thought. It was an age of vast creative enterprises in the world of speculation. It was an age on which the Christian philosopher and the Christian historian who have begun to understand it laughed it well. They realized that it was not a dark age, but an age of enlightened faith, which more than any other understood the paramount importance of the supernatural element in life, and which, while it gave to reason its legitimate rights, was more willing than any other age to give unto God the things that are God's. During the 13th century, the Church triumphed in Italy in the temporary rule of her visible head. She triumphed throughout the Holy Roman Empire in the acknowledgement which emperors made of their dependence on the Holy See. But it was in the Christian schools of Europe, and especially of France, that she achieved a still more honorable triumph in the recognition of the true value of theological science and in the universal acknowledgement of the principle that there can exist no contradiction between the data of revelation and the truths which human reason discovers. Soon, all this was to be changed. The struggles with the empire, the exile to Avignon, and the Western schism were to disrupt the external harmony in which sanctity and learning had thriven, while the growing influence of the Averroists and the decay of scholasticism were to bring about the final dissolution of scholastic philosophy by establishing the maxim that what is true in philosophy may be false in theology. The 13th century was an age of men rather than of schools. It was dominated by the personality of the great masters of scholasticism. 
it was an age of great intellectual activity. There was not, as is sometimes asserted, merely one school and that an uninvitingly orthodox one. The unanimity with which the greatest of the schoolmen advocated the fundamental principles of scholasticism was compatible with a considerable degree of variety as to the details of method and doctrine. Roger Bacon and Albert the Great advocated the use of observation and experiment and sought to introduce a reform in scientific method. St. Thomas refuted pantheism, innatism, and other errors and gave a positive development to Aristotelian philosophy. St. Bonaventure formulated a system of Christian mysticism which was destined to become the inspiration of the orthodox mystics of later times. Henry of Ghent furnished arguments for the refutation of skepticism and developed the exemplarism of St. Augustine. And Scotus inaugurated an age of criticism and formulated a system of voluntarism which should have stimulated the later scholastics to enlarge and strengthen the philosophical synthesis of scholasticism in presence of the dangers which were soon to threaten it. Indeed, it is only the superficial student of the 13th century who can fail to recognize that it was a period of immense intellectual activity. End of chapters 41 and 42